First off, guys, I want to I want to apologize. Uh, we're already almost into week four of the building blocks class, and we're somehow just now getting back to record uh, part two from December on what is the Bible. Uh, so my apologies, this is actually the third time audio-wise I have tried to record this, and seems like, just like with the video, there's always something that happens. Um, one point in time I read it twice, and the whole entire thing had crashed and like fallen apart, and so um, who knows, we're going to give it another try here. So back in December in the second class, the first class we had was, who is Jesus? Second class was, what is the Bible? And the uh, camera basically crashed uh, some point in time during the middle of it, and we never got a recording. And so while the PDF and the study guide has been up there, uh, I have not had a chance to get a video recorded, and even audio podcast has fallen apart. So we're just going to kind of dive right in. What is the Bible? But before we discuss exactly what the Bible is, uh, we must understand that the singular book you buy at Mardell's from Amazon that's given to you for holidays, for birthdays, or whatever, it was not originally intended to be a singular book. It wasn't a singular book, not uh, not at all. I mean, the writings of Moses, um, then you've got into the epistles and everything else. It was not a singular book. It was a collection of different writings. These writings vary in authorship, uh, literary styles, different languages. We've got Greek languages. We've got Hebra uh, Hebrew languages. There's even some that uh, are speculated to be in Aramaic. Um, and so you have various different languages, authorship, and literary styles that are all brought together. The Bible we have today is broken down into two distinct portions. Uh, the first is the first 39 books, which were originally written in Hebrew language and is commonly known as the Old Testament. Within the Old Testament, there are four major sections. Number one, the Pentateuch, which is the Torah or the law. Number two, the former prophets, the historical books. Number three, the writings or poetry. And number four, the latter prophets or prophecy. The second portion of our traditional English Bibles is broken down into 27 books, which were originally written in Greek, at least that's all we have, uh, and called the New Testament. Within the New Testament is five major sections. One, the canonical God Gospels, uh, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Number two is the Acts of the Apostles. Number three are the 14 epistles of Paul. Paul was a busy dude. Number four was the seven general epistles. And number five was the book of the Revelation. The New Testament was written by 40 different authors over thousands of different years, uh, many different cultural influences, backgrounds, literary styles, and genres. Uh, so it's not just, again, it's not just one author. It's not like they all got together in a room, formed a council, started writing it, had an orator, ghostwriter, whatever. Uh, that's just simply not the case. For those who have a messianic or a roots-based background, all of these books are traditionally broken down into three major sections um, and include the Torah, the prophets, the Brit Hadashah, and that's where we get different terminology like the Tanakh. Um, the Torah portions are the ones that Judaism as a whole uh, will have in an annual cycle. They try to get through all of them in 52 weeks. This also includes the special readings for the various different feasts and festival days. 
Um, every once in a while, you'll get the profits writings in that cycle. Uh, sometimes it's a triang a triannual cycle, not a single cycle for an annual cycle. Um, but traditionally, it's a messianic type of organization, whether messianic Jewish or um, messianic in independent, who will incorporate what's known as the New Testament, the Brit Hadashah readings into there. And most lists are, are pretty weak on the Brit Hadashah, uh, to be to be quite honest, which is also personally why I believe if you only do Torah portions, your kids aren't going to know Jesus. And you can say that's just simply not true, but I've been doing this for 17 years. Uh, I have been um, in the highest levels of leadership of multiple different organizations. All the organizations aren't identical, and the result has been the same. Basically, your kids are either back in the Christian church, which I personally don't have a problem with, or they have completely just decided to go into Judaism. That normally puts them into becoming an atheist at some point in time, uh, which ultimately means they're their own God. So let's dive right in. Who wrote the Bible? As we dive into this, we must first uh, acknowledge that a good portion of the Bible was actually written after the various different events transpired. Moses wasn't alive at the creation of the earth, and the Gospels weren't written in real time. So when we have the story of Adam and Eve, obviously Moses wasn't there. And so the divine revelation had to have been given to them at some point in time um, afterwards. I mean, obviously Moses wasn't there. Obviously, that kind of stuff, Just we just know that's not true. And so... Um, we know that most of the time, most of the Bible, the scriptures we have, just they weren't written in real time. Luke, for example, in chapter one, actually tells us that he wrote his gospel after research and interviews with other people. So it wasn't written in real time. It was something that he actually calculated and gathered for a period of time and then uh, was able to release it at a later point in time. This has also caused some to. Uh, go down the conspiracy rabbit hole of human error within the scripture. And if there's any discrepancy, if there's any human error within the text, they'll sometimes use this to justify why they can nullify portions of the text or nullify some of the writers of the text. And this is just blatant, errant thought process that, you know, when you have human beings who are writing down stories, um, Maybe, maybe there was bullet point concepts that were written down at one point in time, but for the most part, these are after the fact written down. Um, for people to come along now in the 21st, 22nd, 23rd, 24th, you know, progressive centuries later, and all of a sudden seem to think that somehow we have a divine revelation that these individuals who walked with God, who talked with God, who wrote these down, have uh, stood the test and the scrutiny of thousands of years, somehow like, they don't know what they're doing, and we do. Like, that is a very Western mindset. Um, that's a very arrogant mindset. Quite frankly, like, you're wrong. So, you know, Timothy uh, actually tells us, Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You couple that with, with the testimony of Peter and second Peter chapter one. Uh, remember this is the same Peter that Jesus God in the flesh, the divine, um, says that he's actually going to build his church upon his kingdom, his people. He's going to build 
upon Peter. So in second Peter chapter one, verses 20 through 21, it says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy spirit. And so no prophecy, none of the scripture, uh, was, was any one man's interpretation so trying to find fault with the man or the discrepancies of that is actually falling, finding fault with the uh, spoken from God and the Holy Spirit. So God used humans with different cultural backgrounds, experiences, literary styles, education levels to pour out his divine revelation. Um, and he utilized many different people with many different talents, and they utilize many different types of writing. You have poetry, legal codes, stories, personal letters, uh, apocalyptic revelations, and uh, various different drama to build what is considered to be the beautiful progressive nature of the various different covenants and interaction with God and man. Um, that's pretty amazing. No man could do that. That has to be Holy Spirit inspired. So how do we get the Bible we have today? You know, before our modern biblical canon, uh, the Jewish leadership of Jesus' time had identified 39 books of the Old Testament. So once again, this is the Jewish leadership of Jesus' time. There was 39 books of the Old Testament that they had broken down into three categories. There was the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, 45, 44 through 45, it is quoted as saying, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. So obviously Jesus understood this. Uh, historically, we understand this. We have the information to know that. And Jesus even references it in the scripture. So obviously Jesus isn't taking issue with the historical uh, Jewish leadership's um, interpretation of what was the scripture at that time. And then after Jesus' death and resurrection, the apostles began writing letters to the churches to encourage them and counsel them in the faith of how do they do this. So in Second Peter, again, the rock by which Jesus is going to build his church, in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, we see, And count the patience of your Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own, own destruction, as they do with other scriptures. So Peter equates the writings of Paul, Saul of Tarsus, to the, the scriptures of old. This is, is just one way that basically the scriptures shut down the ignorance of people saying, well, Paul is anti-Torah, Paul is anti-Jewish, and so we have to throw Paul out. Um, if, if there's uh, an interpretation of the Bible that you do not understand, it is probably best to go into times of prayer and fasting with the Lord for the revelation versus trying to shut down some other people. There's even been memes that have been passing around on social media where it says when Paul is telling people to study to show themselves uh, approved that uh, there was no writings or there was no scripture, so the Torah is all you need. That's, that's just false. That's just absolutely ignorant of the progressive nature of the covenants and plan of God. As, as a uh, Messianic Hebrew church guy over here, um, 
you need to understand that Peter, people who walked with God, people who talked with God in the flesh, they understood we do not. We're trying to, but the same divine revelation they got to see and have outpoured on them, we're asking for God to do the same. And if we all of a sudden try to arrive to some place that is absolutely different than what the scripture says, we are in error. The word of God is not. In 367 AD, we have the oldest documented list of the New Testament writings called Antoniasis List. Then we see that Josephus is credited uh, with the first list of the Old Testament writings that dated to the first century. Josephus's list included 22 books, which align with the current 39 books of the modern Bible. And then Josephus's list was confirmed by Philo of Alexandria, who also was in the first century. So we do have historical information to back that up on. There's a lot of commonalities within the books and the listings of the books in the inspired scripture. The New Testament writings were starting to be authoritative in the first century, according to Luke, Timothy, and Peter. This continues in the second century when Papias received at least the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, 1 Peter, 1 John, the Revelation, and even some of Paul's epistles. So those were already being um, received by different lists as early as the second century as being considered to be equal and equating to the scriptures of old, the Torah, the, the prophets, the writings. By the middle of the second century, Justin Martyr had established a fourfold gospel collection to read along with the Old Testament books. In his collection, he included 22 of what is considered the current 27 books of our modern canon. Yet throughout history, there have been different various codexes and lists. And, and so today, it's, it's no different. Like you could say, well, the biblical canon, well, which biblical canon? Because the, the Catholic perspective has a different biblical canon than the Protestant perspective. And um, like, I, you know, we're, we're arguing over the same thing. Oh, well, the Catholics did this, the Protestants did that. So which one are you actually referencing? Are you referencing the canon of the Catholic perspective, the Protestant perspective, uh, Justin Martyr's list, even going back, um, the Septuagint, the Masoretic text? These are centuries old arguments on who is and what is considered to be authoritative. Why do we somehow think that we're like now going to answer this for the first time ever? Um, I think it's important for us to understand that. So let's go ahead and look at the Septuagint or the Masoretic text. You know, a lot of times people actually pit them against each other, um, yet they're not fully read in. Like, so especially our, our, our corner of Christianity, a lot of people are like, oh, the Masoretic texts are like the gospel. Let's use the Masoretic text. Um, but they don't know much about the Septuagint. They just say, oh, well, the Septuagint was in Greek and we're looking for the Hebrew undertones. So let's, let's look at this. Let's look at history and let's see if there's maybe some errant thought process here. The Septuagint is the oldest surviving Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It was actually compiled, traditionally believed, we don't have 100% evidence of this, but it is traditionally believed it was compiled by 72 Jewish scholars. Not Roman scholars, not Catholic scholars, 72 Jewish scholars sometime right around the 3rd century BC. This is before Jesus. So... Um, 
the Bible that the the apostles would have, the Bible that Jesus would be referencing, the Bible that would be in Jerusalem and Galilee and all these different areas, that Bible was the Septuagint. That was the the text of the time, the codex that they had at the time, and it was Jewish influenced. Um, with the rise of the Roman Empire, Greek was the common language that was spreading and being utilized during the Roman reign. So the Septuagint was a popular resource, not only for Jews, uh, but also for Jews who wanted to share the information with others who lived under the Roman rulership wherever they might live. Now, the Masoretic text is considered by a lot to be the authoritative version of the Hebrew Bible because that's the text that the uh, Jews and Judaism today consider to be the authoritative version. However, it wasn't codified until around the 9th century by a group of Jewish scholars known as the Masoretes. So once again, both the Septuagint and the Masoretic text were codified by Jewish scholars, but one was done before Christ and one was done after Christ. The Masoretes' name was derived from the Hebrew word Mesorah, which means traditions. Um, now, a lot of the texts in, in both of the manuscripts, they're actually very similar. But it is important for us to note, note the Hebrew text when, when both of the manuscripts are in agreement. However, when they differ, it's important for us to look at both. It's very important for us to look at both. This is where we get the differing verbiage of the various different English translations, the ESV, the NASB, so on and so on. Uh, a good modern English translation actually considers the Septuagint, the Masoretic text, and the Dead Sea Scrolls from the Qumran. This is important for you to understand because, uh, especially in the Messianic Hebrew root side of Christianity, a lot of individuals are loving these new translations of the Bible the ones that make it more Jewish or whatever. Um, who's the scholars? Who, what, what is the uh, authoritative panel used? Because they already say that their goal is to uh, incorporate more of the Jewish elements of the scripture into them. But who's the linguistic experts? Where are the PhDs? Who are those individuals and what is the process by which they use? Those are all key things you should really take into consideration if you're going to get a non-vetted uh, English version of the Bible. Uh, if one individual sat down and codified a text of the Bible, run. I don't care who the person is run because there's no balance in wrestling with the text the same way centuries have done. And this is where it can easily be interpreted or uh, used in kind of a cultish way. And so I would be very, very skeptical of those. Um, it's also important for us to understand that not every English translation is a literal translation. Sometimes the whole goal is for precepts and parables and that's it. For example, um, the most scholarly word-for-word -word translation of the Bible, if I am going into uh, a strip club, if I am going into uh, a drug addict's house, uh, I, I, sometimes I'm probably not going to take them that version of the Bible. And the reason why I'm not going to take them that version of the Bible is not because I don't believe it's accurate. It's because really all they need right now, they don't need to understand Hebrew or Greek or whatever. They need to understand that somebody loves them, that somebody cares for them, somebody died for them. And so they need the basic precepts and parables of who Jesus is and what the plan of God is. Not necessarily the most accurate translation of the Bible. 
And there's many, many stories out there of, of villages who have done translations and things like that. And, and, and depending upon what the cultural background and that stuff is, sometimes you have to modify those things so that the, the parable and the precept of what God is trying to get across can get across to those individuals. And I think it's very important for you to understand that, not just to immediately take issue with it. Um, it's also been kind of rumored out there that uh, the differences in the Masoretic text versus the Septuagint was that uh, the Jewish scholars after Jesus intentionally had a desire to minimize any influence that could point to Jesus in the text. Maybe it is true. Uh, that's It's absolutely possible that that's true. However, it really isn't documented well, and it, it would only be speculative of their motives. No different than it is very speculative to say that Constantine somehow wanted to, um, every single thing Constant, Constantine did was to minimize the Jewish influence in the scriptures or the customs or whatever. Um, implied intent and intent from a legal terminology if you're an attorney or you know an attorney, I ask you to ask them. Uh, intent is very, very hard to prove. It's very hard to prove. And so when you get into a situation where you you are trying to imply intent or crucify by intent or speculate by intent, um, unless you have historical information or you have factual information, you are you are speculative. And um, a lot of times it creates controversies. And 2 Timothy 2.23 tells us, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. We're, didn't, we're not to have anything to do with that. So given the date of creation, we know that the Septuagint is safe to say the apostles had it. Um, it was influential probably in their life, uh, in their studies, in their growth. Yet most of your good modern English translations have actually utilized the text from the Septuagint, the Masoretic text, and the Qumran um, writings, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so um, a lot of people are like, oh, I need to get this type of Bible. Like uh, ESV uses all of them. NASB uses all of them. Like they wrestle with the text. There's a group of people in a peer review group that wrestles with centuries of textual information, cultural information. And I think it's important for us to understand that uh, and not immediately just like, oh, they're church people. They don't understand. Yeah, only cult leaders do that type of stuff where they just try to break down other individuals and imply uh, speculative motives that they have no basis of facts on. God tells us not to bear false witness on individuals. So we really need to be careful and being speculative of what their motives are when there is no actual like history or factual information to back that up. Why do I say that and transition into uh, parts of the final parts of this podcast? Uh, Because now we're going to deal with extra biblical text. Um, Some of these are considered to be a part of biblical canons. Um, You know, in the Apocrypha, there are books in the Catholic Bible that are not in what's uh, commonly known as the Protestant Bible. If you get into some of these um, non-accredited translations of the Bible, you'll have all kinds of extra big biblical books. And people will say, oh, it's the lost book. It's the lost book of Enoch. It's the lost book of Jasser. It's the lost book. It's the lost book. They've The Catholic Church has hidden this from us. Or surely Constantine and the adversary doesn't want us to have that um, these offer a full revelation of the timeline of God and the history of God and all that. Okay, well, let's, let's look at that. For example, Enoch. We don't absolutely 100% know definitively when 
the book of Enoch, and there's multiple books, the, the writings of Enoch were, uh, were composed. But it is speculated that it would be sometime between 300 to 200 BC. So um, during the time of having the, the Septuagint, they would also have been comprising these uh, documents, which are commonly put together as the Book of Enoch. However, they attribute the Book of Enoch, books of Enoch, to Enoch from Genesis. That's impossible. Um, just, just categorically impossible based upon the timeline. There's thousands of years there. There's thousands of years between what is believed to be the compensation date and when the actual Enoch from the book of Genesis, uh, lived on the earth. It's absolutely impossible historically. Um, now, on top of that, due to the varying collections, the varying dates, and the varying different literary styles, it's actually widely believed that what we know as the books of Enoch now actually had multiple authors. And given the timing of, of the collections of these different writing styles and different different literary styles, um, the Enoch from the book of Genesis absolutely could not have been the actual author of the books. Um, just couldn't be just by pure historical fact could not be. So when we hear people talk about the Zadok priestly calendar and the Enoch calendars, there's a bunch of Enoch calendars out there now. And by doing this, we understand these other books. Um, I'm sorry, that's not uh, that's not a healthy way to look at the Bible. First off, it, it, the progressive nature of God from the garden to the time of Noah uh, with Abraham, then even to Sinai, and then even the progressive nature after Sinai. So we have the giving of the Torah at Sinai. And then we have the uh, wandering in the wilderness, ultimately the promised land. So how God interacted through the covenant of Moses at Sinai was not the same way that he did when they got in the land. Originally, there was a tabernacle. And then by the time they got uh, from the tabernacle, they built a house for the Lord called the temple. The temple was destroyed. They're into exile. Another temple again. The second temple, temple period, uh, a lot of people that don't even want to talk about, Herod built that temple. He also built almost an identical temple to the same one on the Temple Mount uh, just up the road uh, for a, um, uh, a different God. And so um, there is a progressive nature of God throughout the covenants and the development of what he does. So to say like, uh, okay, well, you know, we can't do the Hallel two or the Gregorian calendar or whatever. We need to go back to these, uh, what is considered to be pre prehistoric, I guess, uh, early biblical calendars. Uh, that's just pure nonsense. It's, it, it defies logic. It defies Holy Spirit uh, inspiration and revelation. Uh, we might as well just go ahead and let Robert Morris of Gateway or Jack Deere, N.T. Wright, or any of these other individuals write us a, a new calendar or consider their books to be uh, divine revelations equal to that of, of Paul and Moses and all these other things. It, it's just pure nonsense. And um, we shouldn't, we shouldn't allow that to be. Now, I'm not going to say that you can't use Jasser or Enoch or Jubilees or some of these other books uh, to impart wisdom or contextual information, um, because I think you absolutely can. And, you know, I do the same thing, so I'd be hypocritical to say you can't. Like like Robert Morris, Jack Deere, N.T. Wright, Michael Heiser, some of the Jewish sages writing. When you read those things, they help offer further insight to help understand concepts, the context of the culture and the practices, the influences of, of the culture and the practices that's there. And so to say that you can't glean any type of insight 
insight uh, from those studies would be ignorant on my part, but to elevate it to some sort of divine inspired authoritative word of God status uh, seems to just be void of centuries worth of study, debate, wisdom, counsel, and just logical thought process. Um, I, I always reserve the right to be wrong, but um, if my wife, my, my five kids, and I all wrote different writings at different points in time that sp spanned 100 years, and then somehow... Somebody came back and said, uh, well, it was divinely inspired 700 years after I died. Like, well, think of how many, even if it was me, even if it was my family, think of how many generations and, and how many times when you just play telephone, the good old game of telephone, how many times does the information immediately shift? Like it immediately shifts. So uh, be real wary of those who elevate Enoch and some of these other extra biblical books to be um, inspired, especially if they're not willing to give you the actual historical references and information on the books. Um, it's one thing to give you all the information, and allow you to make the decision yourself. That, I, I think that's very healthy. That's a church we try to be. Give you the information. You make the decisions yourself. You get with the Lord, pray fast, whatever happens, happens. You, you know, you're the Lord's and the Lord is smarter than any of us. Um, but when people hide information, or they twist information, uh, I would I would just be weary of those situations. Again, I don't know what their motives are, why they do that, whatever. I, I don't know. I'm not going to speculate, but like I would be wary of those. So as we wrap up today, first off, again, thank you for bearing with me. Um, I know that we originally taught this class back in early December, uh, and now it's mid-January, and I'm just now getting the podcast out. And so my apologies. Once again, today, I actually sat down and recorded it multiple times, and like it died or didn't even realize it wasn't recording, and... So yeah, it's been, uh, I, I guess pe like the adversary doesn't want me to tell people about the Septuagint. Like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go into too speculative things like that, but I will say that like as a whole, um, it has, it has been very interesting trying to get this recorded. So as we conclude today, um, the Bible we have today, especially most of the widely respected English translation, 100% is the authoritative word of God. And it comes with the historical evidence to serve as the foundation of why it has stood centuries. When you want to talk, I don't, I don't know that there is more, uh, another book or documentation that has come under as much scrutiny, um, just hatred, hell bent on destroying, finding fault, discrediting the text, the individuals, and yet it has been proven when the Bible is studied, meditated on, applied, prayed into, uh, that is a stabilizing, transformative work can happen inside of you through the salvation of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of how to take the contextual precepts and parables that were instructed to individuals and turn that into something that can be life altering for you so many years later. And so, um, we started off with who is Jesus, looking at exactly what the Bible says, the hypostatic union, the having good Christology, understanding uh, what the book of Hebrews says about the, the high priest uh, and his role that way too. 
Then we went into what is the Bible, how to properly divide and interpret and study the word of God. Then we went into salvation, why there's salvation, what was the plan. And it was a progressive varying plan throughout uh, the entire book of the Bible excuse me, books of the Bible, uh, on, on exactly what God was doing and all foreshadowed to Jesus, his work, uh, on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, uh, and then outpouring of his spirit. Um, next we're going to go into a look at why a Sabbath is necessary. Um, we're not really going to focus in on, oh, I think Saturday is a Sabbath. Like historically speaking, Saturday is hundred percent the Sabbath. It's not even, it's not even a thing. Um, but why? Why did we need a Sabbath? Why Why did God choose to take a Sabbath? Why did God encourage that mentality? Was it because we were working so hard that we, we just must take a rest? Or maybe we were supposed to be a restful people that then worked from a place of rest rather than resting from a place of work. Um, interesting concept. And so we'll be looking at that at the next Building Blocks classes. And uh, I pray that you guys have a great day. And we will see you soon.